Let us pray together. O God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we thank you that you've given us such a glorious day to reflect on your gift of creation. We pray that the meditation of our hearts today would be guided by your Holy Spirit and would lead to more faithful living and more faithful care for what you have entrusted to us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it sure was a long winter, wasn't it? Oh, come on. It sure was a long winter, wasn't it? (laughs) Oh, boy. Bitter, cold, snow days, putting out salt on the walks, ice storms, two trees fell over between our house and our neighbors. It was pretty dramatic. And I think because it was so cold and so long and so bitter, all of us have been enjoying spring and delighting in spring, the coming, the arrival of spring in a special way. That's right. A group of uh, women from our congregation were out hiking yesterday, and perhaps they will have a testimony from what they experienced and they saw. I know this year for myself, I felt especially astonished again by the beauty of blossoming dogwoods and redbuds, by my amazement that hostas can actually grow more than an inch every day. I was going to say it seems sometimes two or three inches. And most of all, I have been thrilled, or I was thrilled on Friday, late afternoon when I was out in County Park along the Conestoga River, and I saw my first two Baltimore Orioles of the season. Yeah. Now, what day was Friday in the calendar? May? May 2nd. All right. Remember that at the end of my sermon, it's going to become important. And you know, as Daryl mentioned for us this morning, we have the privilege, perhaps God knew that we needed to live in the Northern Hemisphere, where the coming of Easter and the coming of spring are beautifully integrated and help us to contemplate the great mystery of our Lord's resurrection. Can you imagine contemplating new life just as winter was arriving? I think that would be a lot harder. But there's something about the arrival of spring that just opens our hearts and minds to receive the new life that Christ brings us through his resurrection. You know, sometimes it's helpful to read Scripture with a new context in mind. And I found this past week that reading our Emmaus story with our creation care theme in mind helped me to see some new stuff. I found it fascinating, for example... 
that Luke's telling of the whole Easter story, which begins in chapter 24, verse 1, begins with these intriguing words. It is the first day of the week, he tells us. Now remember, you have to think Jewish calendar here. That's Sunday, the first day of the week. What else happens in the Bible on the first day of the week? Well, creation. It's on the first day of the week that God says, let there be light. And there is light. And it's also on the first day of God's new creation, creation 2.0, where God raises Jesus from the grave, overcomes the powers of darkness in our world, and once again says, let there be light. And have you ever noticed that in Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion in the chapter right before, in chapter 23, that all of creation seems to be torn apart by grief and sorrow. Luke 23, verse 45 says that on that Friday, the sun's light fails and a terrible darkness comes over the land as our Lord hangs on the cross for those six terrible hours. And so what I want to invite us to do this morning is to imagine that if all of creation was weeping and mourning with Jesus on Friday, is it a stretch of the imagination to imagine that perhaps on Easter morning, all of creation, all of the splendor of the Lord was rejoicing with Jesus as He was raised from the grave? As Psalm 149 or 148 says, that the mountains and the hills, the fruit trees and the cedars, the animals and the cattle, the creeping birds, and of course I love this, the flying birds are all praising God. And is it a stretch of the imagination to imagine that that Easter morning is more stunningly beautiful than any other morning. That the sky is more indigo blue. The sunbeams are more crystal clear. The bird song more exuberant. And the springtime green of the hills more breathtaking than ever before. You know, it's probably around midday on that Easter day, on that first day of the week, that two of Jesus' disciples set out for the village of Emmaus some three hours away by foot. Seven miles. I think the average person walks maybe two, sometimes three miles per hour. Verse 18 says that one of these people is Cleopas. Cleopas is a 
man's name, so we know his gender. Many paintings about this scene show two men walking together, but Bible commentators say that it's far more likely that the other one is perhaps his wife. John 19.25 talks about a certain Mary, of Clo- or Mary wife of Clopas who stays with, the Je- with Jesus at the cross. And perhaps these are the same people. Well, as they head eastward toward Emmaus, the city walls of Jerusalem slowly recede behind them in the distance. The clamor of the Passover crowds slowly gives way to birdsong. Kingfishers, warblers, flycatchers, larks, pipits, finches, sparrows, buntings, and hoopoes all singing their song. Great V's of white storks fly northward overhead on their northward annual migration. And it's spring and the usually barren hills of Palestine are now carpeted with poppies and roses of Sharon and lilies of the valley. Cleopas and his companion are talking about all the things that have just happened in Jerusalem. And for them, if creation is rejoicing, they're not noticing. Because this is still the third day of their desolation. You see, they had thought that Jesus was the one. The Messiah who would redeem their people. Who'd finally throw off the Roman Empire's occupation. And bring in and usher in God's kingdom of justice and shalom. But instead of throwing off their oppressors, Jesus is killed by them. And worst of all, he dies on a cross. The shameful death of murderers. And thieves. And so we have to ask is this why Jesus, or excuse me, is this why these two are now leaving Jerusalem? Are they not just leaving Jerusalem, but perhaps are they also leaving discipleship? Throwing in the towel? At this point, the Jesus movement now seems destined to be nothing more than a footnote in some dusty history book. That is, until the next thing happens in our story. When the risen Jesus comes near, I love those two words, comes near. Jesus comes near these two travelers and still unrecognized, begins to interpret for them all the things about himself that have taken place in Scripture from Moses all the way through the prophets. He breaks open their minds. Later on, he'll break the bread. 
But first, he breaks open their minds to understand where God's salvation story has been going the whole way. And friends, I hope that all of us here at East Chestnut see what Jesus is doing here. He is modeling for us the Christ-centered way of reading Scripture that we've been talking about these past weeks and months together. He is showing His friends and He's showing us that He is our key. Jesus is our key for unlocking all the mysteries of Scripture. Well, when these three finally arrive in Emmaus, verse 29 says that it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. I imagine the sun, the setting sun, painting the landscape with a wash of amber and scarlet and crimson light. I imagine Jesus walking out ahead. What a strange detail. Jesus kind of, the I don't know what the reading was, Dan, was it NIV? It says Jesus acted like he was going ahead. I imagine maybe these two travelers losing Jesus in the setting sun because he was heading eastward. And they call him back and they invite him in for supper. What has to be one of the most beautiful scenes in the life of Jesus. And at that evening, as they share the meal, he takes bread, he blesses it, and he shares it, and suddenly their eyes are opened. That's what it took. Suddenly their eyes are opened. And we have to, under, we have to imagine or ask ourselves, what was it? Was it the way that he prayed? Was it the way that he broke the bread? Was it the way they felt this pull of the holy drawing them into communion with him? We don't know. But after Jesus vanishes, these two race back to Jerusalem. Actually, that way. Is it? In the dark. Race back to Jerusalem in the dark to tell everyone how Jesus has been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And we will be experiencing that same reality here together in just a little bit. Today, our congregation is entering into this worship series about sustaining and preserving the world that God has entrusted into our care. And we're going to be talking in the coming weeks about some difficult things, hard realities that our ways of living and consuming are raising the earth's temperature, causing extreme floods and droughts, wiping out plant life and animal species, and contaminating the environment. 
But today, we want to begin by remembering and celebrating that creation is the theater of God's glory. That wasn't Menno Simons who said that, it was John Calvin. Let's just say that together. Creation is the theater of God's glory. We don't need to just care for the world so that we have enough clean air to breathe. So that we have enough clean water to drink. And we do. We need these things. We need the beauty of the world to draw our hearts and our minds to God. I don't know how many people, especially our young people, when they tell me the story, their testimony of faith, how many of them, a key part of their coming to faith, God's drawing them to faith, has some crucial story about experiencing God out in the natural world. As Romans 1.20 says so beautifully, ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen in the things that God has made. Back in 1997... The sighting of two Baltimore Orioles along the Conneaut River in Carlisle became one of the most significant spiritual experiences in my life. I was standing by the river of near the home of Jeanette's parents, and suddenly On a sunny day, they came into the tree branches right nearby, and I was dazzled by their orange glory. And those two birds (laughs) became my doorway into bird watching, into exploring creation and understanding that those birds had flown all the way from Central America. And then year by year, I started writing down the dates that they arrive. And in Chicago, it was always May 5 through May 12. Apparently, here in Pennsylvania, it's May 2 to who knows when. What is that, a trip of two or 3,000 miles? And they always arrive in the first week of May? Wow. And so those birds drew me to lift my heart to God, the creator of these amazing realities. How does that happen for you? We all need, through creation, to find these doorways that draw us more deeply into relationship with God. For some of us, it might be gardening. For some of us, like Clara, it might be photography. 
hiking, biking. But in some way, we need to connect with the natural world so that we can connect with God. And I was never on to this until we lived in Beijing, in the capital of China, back in the 90s. And I began to notice, for the first time, the huge spiritual implications of our environmental crisis. Because of that city's extreme air pollution, we would sometimes go for weeks without seeing the stars or the sun. Or the sun. Every day was another toxic haze. We didn't even look at the weather report. We knew what it was going to be. A gritty layer of soot covered every leaf and flower. Almost no birds. And I found myself hungering for beauty. And hungering for God. Because God felt so absent in that toxic haze. And since then, as millions and millions of Chinese have shifted from bicycles to automobiles, just like who? Like us. The air quality in that city has only gotten worse. I checked just this week, and they say now the airborne toxic particles sometimes register 25 times the level level considered safe. 25 times higher. Friends, Psalm 148 reveals to us the profound link between ecology and doxology. Doxology, the praise of God. The link between creation care and spiritual care. We don't have our cable cars anymore, but we have these. To care for the earth is to preserve its praise and worship of God. This isn't about political correctness. It is about preserving the praise and worship of creation. And it is to protect one of the crucial ways that we have been given to draw near to God and to become a new creation ourselves. So in this series, we want to focus especially on how our church can contribute to the well-being of creation from our part of this city and from this very particular watershed that we live in. And what is it? The watershed of which river? Susquehanna and... The Conestoga. Because, as it's been said, we won't save places that we don't love. 
And we can't love places that we don't know. Amen.